0: Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This, of course, is your host, DJ Louis XIV, and I'm here to remind you to please Rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon. Every review you leave, especially in the Apple Podcast Store, helps the show get recognized by the algorithm and in front of more people. So thank you so much to everybody that's been doing that. Please don't forget to follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod on both Instagram and Twitter. I'm at DJ DJLOUIEXIV on both Instagram and Twitter, so that's where you can find me. Hop in our Discord channel. This is where all smart, fun... Cool pop fans come together to talk about the podcast, talk about pop, etc. Check out our Spotify playlist for this and every episode. And come to Gorgeous Gorgeous, my queer pop party this weekend, Saturday, at Resident in downtown Los Angeles. As ever, seeing pop pantheon fans at Gorgeous Gorgeous is one of my favorite things. And this is our Halloween edition, so you can come in a costume. We're encouraging costumes. You don't have to wear costume. I'm still trying to figure this out because I'm not the biggest costume person on earth. But my uh, partners are trying to force it upon me, so my costume will be revealed. Maybe it's actually going to be someone that we've talked about on the podcast. Maybe. I don't know. I I really hate dressing up, but I'm going to do it for the team. And I love other people's costumes. So with all that said, come to Gorgeous Gorgeous, our Halloween edition, October 22nd. That's this Saturday at Resident in downtown Los Angeles. Links for the tickets, links for the Discord, links for Spotify, etc. will be in the show notes of this episode. I will also share them on our social media channels. And lastly, I will also share the link to buy our Pop Pantheon dad hat. It says niche legend in pink because you are all my niche legends out there listening to the show and we all need to celebrate our niche legendum. So cop the pop pantheon niche legend dad hat. Link for that will also be in the show notes, also on social media. So let's get into this week's episode, which is about one of my all-time faves that I grew up with that were formative to me, young Louie, as a pop fan and with whom I was completely enamored as a 10-year-old and so forth. And who really deserve to be celebrated, not just because they made some really fucking iconic and indelible hits that have lived on to this day, but because looking back, they were really a force for good in the world of pop music and pop culture. A group that celebrated individuality, celebrated female solidarity, celebrated friendship above all else and celebrated being yourself in a time period when pop stardom didn't necessarily encourage that they really were out here encouraging young people to have fun being exactly who you are no matter how weird or out there that seemed and I know that's a message we hear a lot in pop these days but in that time period they were really ahead of the curb on that and they didn't just talk about it but they really represented and lived it so it was so much fun getting to go back to all of this so I'm so excited to share it with you guys and Here it is. Pop Pantheon Spice Girls. 22 Months. That's the time that elapsed between British supergirl group Spice Girls dropping their debut single, Wannabe, in July 1996, and May 1998, when Jerry Halliwell announced she was leaving the group, effectively ending, for all intents and purposes, and we will get into forever later, the group's storied initial explosion into the pop stratosphere. I start here because I think it might astound you, as it did me, to remember this fact, considering just how large Spice Girls' legacy looms over popular culture. In just under two years, Spice Girls achieved what it takes most pop stars an entire career to accrue, if they ever do it all. Two smash albums, seven, uh, depending who you're talking to, classic hits, a vanity film project, a handful of massive arena tours, era-defining fashion, Pepsi ads, lollipops, and a catchphrase, girl power, that continues to endure 25 years on. I'm not sure I could name another pop act in history that burned so bright and so fast, but no matter the details, there's no question that these five tenacious, scrappy, boisterous, and capital F British Chicks, Baby, Sporty, Ginger, Posh, and Scary, defined the 90s pop scene not just because the music was undeniable and the platforms were unforgettably high. Spice Girls made a mark this seismic that fast because they led a movement, embodying a message that championed solidarity between women, friendship over everything, and the freedom to be yourself without ever seeming pedantic and never giving up on the good times. Spice Girls simply and effortlessly were girl power, and it was through that unfussy. And unself conscious authenticity that the group swiftly seared themselves into pop history. Ice Girls were formed in the mid-90s by father and son duo Bob and Chris Herbert of Heart Management, who sought out, quote, five strikingly different girls who were streetwise, outgoing, ambitious, and dedicated to form a girl group that could compete with the hugely popular boy band wave then consuming the UK. An audition process and a few shakeups eventually led to a lineup of five women. Melanie Brown, Melanie Chisholm, Emma Bunton, Jerry Halliwell, and Victoria Adams, each notably different personalities, none of whom were the most classically talented pop aspirants, but who were ultimately bound together by their good nature, ambition, and scrappy appeal. The Herberts proceeded to move the group into a house so they could train and bond with one another. But while the girls themselves got along like a house on fire, the relationships with the Herberts quickly crumbled. And thanks to never having officially signed anything with Hart Management, the 5 was able to extradite themselves from under Hart's control and strike out on their own. On their way out the door, they took the demos they'd recorded thus far, which included many of their future hits with them and used them to book more studio sessions and eventually catch the attention of heavyweight music manager, Simon Fuller. With four Fuller and a bunch of promising tunes in tow, the girls set off a bidding war between record labels that eventually landed them a deal with Virgin who released their debut single, Wannabe, along with its now iconic music video in the summer of 1996. This music video introduced many of the tropes that would come to define Spice Girls, a charmingly rough around the edges one take showcase for utterly boisterous anarchy. In it, the girls, each singularly attired to display her own personality, ransack a stuffy cocktail party in a fancy hotel, wherein the pretentious guests eventually Cannot help but be swept up in the sheer force of good feeling the group imparts by entering the space. The choreo is loose and imperfect, and sometimes it looks like one of the girls might trip, but the shagginess is key. These were five normal, round-the-way girls who were clearly having the time of their lives. It was infectious, and so was the song itself, an absolutely ebullient hip-hop-pop hybrid that cleverly uses the lyrics to lay out each girl's unique role, introduced the classic pop nonsense phrase, zig-a-zig-ah, into the lexicon, and came complete with a life-affirming chorus celebrating the power of female friendship and which remains one of 90s pop's most indelible. If you wanna be my lover you gotta get with my friends make it last forever. Friendship never ends if you wanna be my lover you have to wannabe is nearly an unrivaled opening salvo in pop history. it topped the charts in 22 countries and is still to this day the best-selling single by a girl group in history. Their debut album Spice quickly followed that fall. Spice largely placed a distinctively Europop sheen on American r tropes and hewed closely and quite effectively to the girl power message championed in Wannabe. It featured a run of classic late 90s hits like the G-Funk indebted Say You'll Be There the quiet storm ballad To Become One and the glorious disco homage Who Do You Think You Are among others and was an utter sensation going on to sell 23 million copies worldwide. Within months, the Spice Girls had become the biggest and most important pop act on earth, saturating the monocle with not only their music, but their ethos. Unlike so much pop geared towards teens in this period, the group led with their realness, the patina that none of this was manufactured, and they were fully in control of their destiny. They spoke frankly and off the cuff in interviews, swore like sailors, spoke about sex and their music in ways that could be seductive, but were always more big sisterly than salacious, and never seemed to forget that having a blast was ultimately the most important thing they could do as pop icons. The idea that they were running their own show was key. A sheen so few masses pop acts, especially women this early in their careers, can achieve. The pace of their explosion, though, ended up being a gift and a curse. Beginning in early 1997, while they were still touring Spice, the girls began work on a follow-up album and a semi-fictionalized feature film, both called Spice World. The film, released in December of that year, is Pure Camp, a largely plotless romp with the group globe charting in a decked-out tour bus encountering aliens and Elton John on the way to a massive gig at London's Royal Albert Hall. The album, released a month earlier in November, just under a year after Spice, continued their cavalcade Of massive singles, including the stunning Holland Dozier Holland throwback "Stop," the slinky "Too Much," and the absolutely bonkers salsa-inspired lead single "Spice Up Your Life." Spice World, both the movie and the album, Spice Girls were on top of the world. However, a backlash, based partially in their myriad commercial endeavors, which included everything from stickers to dolls, but perhaps more based in just sheer overexposure, was beginning to foment. Internally, too, things were beginning to come apart. The group had been working basically nonstop since their formation, and while they'd initially bonded on their tenacity to get to the top, exhaustion was setting in. In early 1998, the group embarked on the massive Spice World tour. However, things quickly devolved and the group's global dominance came to a screeching halt when, in May 1998, mid-tour, Jerry Halliwell abruptly announced her departure from the group, citing exhaustion and disillusionment. The foursome completed the Spice World tour and then went on hiatus. For a collective that had churned on the power of female friendship, this rupture proved somewhat fatal, at least to Spice Girls' initial imperial phase. All five of the girls went on to release solo music to varying success, although none of them even neared the heights they'd found together. The four remaining girls released a third album, Forever, in 2000, which went for a harder-edged futuristic R&B sound and, while it produced the hit Holler in the UK, made a pretty modest impact compared to their previous outings. However, the girls have gone on to write some of the shock of their initial breakup by successfully reuniting several times over the last couple decades, including on smash hit reunion tours in both the late aughts and 2010s, and famously at the London Olympics in 2012. The Spice Girls have sold 100 million records worldwide, making them the biggest selling girl group in history and the most successful British pop act since the Beatles. They have nine UK number one singles and 10 top tens, and one US number one single and four top tens. They've received five Brit Awards, three American Music Awards, four Billboard Music Awards, three MTV Europe Music Awards, and one MTV VMA. Rolling Stone journalist and biographer David Sinclair noted Spice Girls as the most recognizable group on earth since the Beatles. Here with me on the podcast to get spicy about the legacy and legend of Spice Girls is music journalist Owen Myers. Okay, so I am here with music journalist Owen Myers.
1: Owen, welcome back. To Pop Pantheon. Thank you. It's great to be back for a subject close to my heart.
0: Likewise, I was deeply transported to my preteen and teen years in preparing for this episode. And I'm so glad to get to have this conversation with you because I feel like we both share that we grew up in the Spice generation.
1: It's a total time machine and as a British person, you know, I know they were so huge all over the world, but it's extremely hard to separate the Spice Girls from my existence as a 9 and 10 year old gay boy in a London suburb. So it's very exciting for me.
0: As I was uh, prepping for this, I became increasingly happy to have a Brit as my guest for this particular episode. <laughs> I was going back through Amy Cliff's like retrospective review on Spice that she did in Pitchfork like in 2019, mm, 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 and she said something like, the Spice Girls are an emblem of a time when, in mainstream culture at least, it was cool to be proud to be British. <laughs> totally, that, totally. How does that
1: strike you, oh. it was a time when it did feel like you could really wear the union jack with pride which Mm. you know they certainly did and it was a time of optimism and it was a time pre-brexit Free certain kind of scandals uh, that have kind of rocked the establishment in recent years. And it was just a free time, it seems like. And, you know, it's easy to be rose-tinted about it, but it really felt like things were possible. We were coming out of austerity, and that late 90s was such a boom time that I think the Girls really put that kind of lightning in a bottle in a way.
0: Yeah, and like, this might be an American lens on it, but there was an up-by-your-bootstraps feel to them. Like there was this Mm, feeling mm, that mm. these were kind of like these working class girls with a lot of ambition and not even a ton of talent that just had a big vision for like what they wanted to do and they achieved it. And that was part of like the magic of the entire phenomenon. I feel like
1: it's that very British thing of like, have a go, like the worst thing you can do is fail. And I think that is exactly what they represented. They weren't classically trained. They had had some sort of stage training, but they weren't by any means like Celine Dion level singers or Brit level dancers or anything like that and they had this infectious personality which translated Mm -hmm. to their personas as well as their music that really managed to capture a zeitgeist in a way that pre-digital it was just complete domination
0: absolutely and what a delightful group of artists and performers and pop cultural figures. I mean, I was obsessed with them in the moment as we talked about earlier, but every time I return to this and I return to the music and I return to Spice World and I return to interviews and what they were just doing in the culture. I remember anew just what effervescent, authentic delights they were as individuals and they were as a group of women with great chemistry who really complimented each other and who felt like real bastions for like what their mission statement was, which was that friendship and especially friendship between women is like the most important thing you can have in life. And they really totally. walked the walk on that. They represented that. Every minute you see them, both in the music, but also in the way that they just presented themselves was representative of that ethos.
1: I think they weren't lofty, you know? They weren't Mm. from another starry tier. They seemed like a gang that you could plausibly be a part of. And I think that is really, really exciting. And I think it really worked for them. You can see that in all the the interviews that they did. They had this infectious feeling, and every room they walked into became kind of transformed and, like, Mm. touched by a little of that chaotic Mm -hmm. pixie dust that they had.
0: Chaotic is a really good word, but chaotic in yeah. the best form of the word, not in like the Trumpy form so. of the word. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that felt really notable to me, especially going back through it all this time, is that the phenomenon was so short. Like they made yeah. such a huge impact on culture and on our generation. In essentially two years, we will get to forever and it's post whatever reunions and forever. Mm-hmm. I can't wait to have a brief moment on that one with you because what a depressing album,
1: but. It's kind of not a real Spice Girls album.
0: It's not canon. <laughs> I put that in my notes. I was like, this is not canon. This is not canon. Like getting leftover Roddy Jerkin's beats from Invincible or something like that. It's whatever, but. The true phenomenon of it between wannabe blowing up in 96 and Jerry leaving the group in early 98 is essentially two years. And yet they still feel like one of the superlative pop acts of that time period. And that's impressive in and of itself. But another thing that that made me think about was what it means for their legacy. And we can readdress this at the end of the conversation that we kind of have them frozen in time. Mm -hmm. Forever notwithstanding, we didn't have to go through 20 years of musical evolutions, tried and failed attempts at maturity. So many groups don't necessarily benefit from making music past their peak. And this group Mm -hmm. largely avoided that, which I wonder if even though maybe we were robbed of some amount of music that would have still been valuable based on how quickly the whole thing dissolved whether it's actually maybe helped their legacy that it was really just contained to this one huge blast
1: I mean, I think it's the best thing for a pop star's legacy to go out on top, right? For sure. And it almost never happens. (laughs) All too rarely. We know the examples. And it's something that all too rarely happens because there is demand. And I think by Jerry leaving, they were forced to stop and reevaluate. And I think it was the most amazing silver lining in a way.
0: Agree. She did them a favor. That's what I walked away from this feeling. Like, Mm. it's a very beautiful thing to have this be a fully contained, encapsulated, Isolated little moment of time that doesn't have to be bastardized by attempts at anything other than what that exact first little magical moment was. That was how I felt this particular listen through. I was happy for them about that and happy for me as
1: a pop and Spice totally. Girls consumer. There's something so important to their identity as a band about the youthfulness, you know, like they mm-hmm. were all in their early 20s. Like when they started out, they didn't have boyfriends necessarily. They really were about a girl gang. And as time went on, when they got pregnancies and engaged and things like that, it would have been really fascinating to see them continue to work through those times but it would have been very different to who we know and love.
0: Totally. I love the chaos thing, because that's so true. If you, <laughs> and let me tell you, if you go back and watch Spice World, fucking chaotic as hell. That is one crazy weird movie. I don't Obviously, know how they got that made. almost an
1: avant-garde film, like non narrative like. Surrealist,
0: Dadaist, <laughs> yeah. what is happening, <laughs> aliens. It, it was insane. Like, total fever dream.
1: Oh my god! And now you've done it now! Jerry, go on, say something.
0: Come on, on. on. say say something. Good, Jerry. What do you want with us? I'm I'm really sorry, but they've all sold out. So, okay, let's take ourselves back a little bit to... Prior to the Spice Girls emergence, I was wondering if you could talk briefly about girl groups more broadly, like in the history of pop, Mm. what kind of music they've made, how they've presented themselves, and sort of like maybe a little bit how they sort of appear in waves.
1: What has that been like
0: historically in pop?
1: I mean... I really think that as long as there's been popular music, there has been girl groups in one form or another. And that started back in the jazz and the swing era of music with bands like the Boswell Sisters and the Pope Sisters.
0: I'm as happy as a king, feeling
1: good in everything, just like a bird in a spring. They soundtracked swing dances, they were close harmony groups. They sometimes had a Harlem twist on glamour. They sometimes were more, more conservative than Girl Next Door. And the close harmony group that is always talked about as really the first star girl band is the Andrew Sisters of the 40s. In the now,
0: the boogie,
1: boogie, of Who were these American sweethearts during World War Two and they had a string of hits. They were demure, they were patriotic. And they were fun. They were always smiling. Very kind of clean cut girl next door, the girls that you'd want to have round for tea, right? Mm. So the girl group kind of started out as this slightly glamorous but fundamentally wholesome thing in the mm. 30s, 40s. And then I guess when the girl group really first exploded was in the 60s, which is the Phil Spector era of girl groups. There were bands like the Ronettes and the Marvelettes and the Crystals, which perfected the girl. Group harmonies. They often dressed in matching outfits. They were always glamorous and had big hair. And they often had a little edge. You know, think of like Ronnie Spector, who's one of Mm -hmm. the most punk rock figures in music history. Like, Mm -hmm. complete badass, um, has the most unmistakable voice, right? When she sings Be My Baby, it's a song that can't be sung by anyone else, really. And she left this kind of indelible mark on pop culture because she was a member of a girl band that was quite fearlessly herself and girl bands traditionally had a lead singer and the rest the most famous example being Diana Ross and the Supremes originally the Supremes and then became Diana Ross and and they were the most glamorous artists i think that i can think of from that period certainly with a string of hits on Motown and some of the most enduring pop songs <laughs> it kind of bittersweet thing about girl bands from the 60s is we don't really talk about them in conversation in quite the same way as a boy band like the Beatles. They're kind of remembered as like the definitive band of that period and you know in many ways rightly so because they were singular, they really informed our current idea of what pop music is. But I think that the girl bands had a lot to offer as well in terms of authorship and in terms of pop inventiveness and they didn't always write their own songs but they brought such magic and personality and craft to the art of pop that I wish we talked about sometimes, the girl groups a little more when we thought about 60s music. And particularly like one of my favorite bands from the period, the Shangri-Las, who were this four piece, there's two pairs of sisters from Queens. And they were the most badass girls that you can imagine. And they sang about dating boys from the wrong side of the tracks. And their songs had the sound of motorbikes, tires, screeching and glass breaking listening to their songs felt like pop magic but it also felt like you were swept into their twisted <laughs> illicit world by the way where'd you meet them And I think that is one of the best things that a girl band can do, is to make you want to feel so powerfully like you want to be part of their gang. To create that world that just fizzles with electricity and is transportive. And you might have the most humdrum life, but to listen to one of those songs can, at its best, make you feel completely transported. So I think the 60s really helped to kind of establish what a girl band can do. And mm-hmm. there was an explosion of them, but oftentimes they were singles artists, right? Mm-hmm. Like these weren't really album artists. That kind of started to change a little as we moved into the 70s with some of the disco girl groups like LaBelle and Sister Sledge and the Pointer Sisters.
0: I'm
1: these really glamorous representations of what disco can do with harmonies and gorgeous gowns. And they were really important to the disco era in communicating a sense of joy and a sense of glamour and fantasy to the disco period. But I will say that there perhaps wasn't like a f- definitive girl group that we can think of to define the 70s or 80s. Yeah. In the 80s, you're looking around and you're finding Bananarama, who were mm-hmm. fantastic British girl group who had the idea to start a band in a pub on a boozy right. night out and wound up getting at least a few US top 10 hits, particularly with Venus and Cruel Summer. Mm-hmm. Had a little of the girl gang thing, but I will say the girl group kind of waned until the early 90s. It was a little on the back burner until the explosion of RB and hip hop girl groups in the early 90s, like Salt and Pepper, On Vogue, TLC. The girl group really was coming roaring back at that time. Like they were right. completely unapologetic. Salt and Pepper talked really frankly about sex. vogue mm-hmm. talked really frankly about race and racial biases, particularly in "Free Your Mind." There were smaller girl groups like Brownstone and SWV that were having big hits. There was Jané The girl group, particularly in American hip-hop and R&B, had never been stronger, but it hadn't quite found its pop equivalent, at least until right. <laughs> we know who. That was such an amazing
0: overview of the history. And it's so funny because as you were talking, I'm just reminded of all how the Spice Girls were able to whip so many of those different eras into their mm. formula, both in terms of the music that they made, which often paid direct homage to various of these eras, whether you're talking about Motown, doo disco. And then, of course, as you were sort of insinuating, a lot of the Spice Girls' ethos was based on these American R&B girl groups of the early 90s, mm. TLC, SWV, And Vogue, Escape, Janet, a lot of the groups you were talking about, their music felt, especially on that first record, heavily indebted to the sounds of American hip-hop and American R&B in that period. And there was a sort of body and bombastic take on girl groupness that those groups had that did fly in the face a little bit of the more prim and proper girl groups of the 60s, which were the other sort of major wave. You know, if you're thinking about Diana Ross and the Supremes, you think about very composed, very put together, very tight and buttoned up. A lot of that had to do with racial dynamics that were going on and how black women had to be presented in order to be accepted into mainstream pop culture. But you think about a very pristine presentation. But as you were getting at, girl groups like En Vogue and definitely TLC, which I think is a really important point to make in context of Spice Girls, were all about kind of being a little bit rough around the edges, authentic, themselves, each having individual personalities. TLC in particular, or... <laughs> They each played an equal role in the group. They each had a distinct vibe, crazy, sexy, cool, whatever you want to call it. So it wasn't like Diana Ross and the Supremes where this was like centered around a single star. It was about, as you said, the gang and each one had a different role to play in it. And their personalities were almost the most important part of the formula. As you said, wanting to be part of their friend group and making sure that their personalities individually and as a group were very clear on these records and I feel like that ethos was incredibly fundamental to what the Spice Girls were getting at or what their foundational principles were.
1: Totally. I think they're really kind of spiritual sisters in a way. Mm. Like oftentimes, I think the music of those hip hop and R&B groups, you can see a whisper of it. You can see the G-Funk or the hip hop influences on the debut album. But really it's a more holistic attitude that showing that times were shifting. And it's interesting that when the Spice Girls were advertised for, like in the stage newspaper, the initial managers they wanted a girl group that was not R and B and hip hop group. Read right. They were not all black members, frankly. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, things are segregated or were to a certain extent. And they wanted to create a pop band, which meant that girls from all races that could appeal to white audiences.
0: Mm. So let's talk about the Spice Girls themselves. And in thinking about that, what exactly these guys... Father and son, Bob and Chris Herbert of Heart Management are thinking about as they sort of conceive of creating this new British girl group. Like what is their vision and how does it relate to everything that we've laid out before?
1: Bob and Chris Herbert were father and son duo and together they formed Heart Management. And just a bit about their history is Bob Herbert had hit on success with an 80s pop duo called Bross that he kind of envisaged them as the UK-based city rollers And Bob and Chris saw a window, you know, actually by virtue of the British pop scene at the time being so male-dominated, Bob said, there's this quote from him and he said that the whole scene was dominated by Take That and Backstreet Boys, who had actually launched in the UK, I think in 95, Mm -hmm. and it was basically that. It was like, the boys are everywhere. But in his head, in this kind of like 90s gender binary way, he was like, the boys will only appeal to girls' fans, right? right?" Like, if you have girls, they can appeal to the girls and the boys. Mm -hmm. So basically, they put an ad in a newspaper called The Stage, which was like an industry paper where performing arts, young men and women would look out for their next audition, frankly. Mm -hmm. The girls, apart from Jerry, had all had some kind of basic performing arts training. And there was this ad in early 94 in The Stage. They were looking for Streetwise, outgoing, ambitious, and dedicated women that were under 23 for an all female pop act. Yes. There was some kind of addendum which said must have the ability to sing and dance.
0: But I think that's so. <laughs> an afterthought. <laughs> Truly not the most important right. part of this project. <laughs> I I just love love that that
1: streetwise is the first word. Ambitious, outgoing are the words.
0: I'm literally like, they nailed it. They were great
1: at casting. I mean, they understood (laughs) the assignment, yeah. There were 400 girls that showed up to the audition and they were split into groups and they had to dance a routine to stay by (laughs) Eternals. So mm-hmm. th- that was like the blueprint, this pop, slightly hip hop. Right. But it was a British twist on it. It right. felt like from the start that it wasn't trying to have them do... SWV. You know, Hold On, or SWV, right. <laughs> or one of one of the big hits. It was a slightly like London streetwise thing that they were tapping into.
0: Right. So they end up with five women. How do we end up with Victoria Adams, Melanie Brown, Melanie Chisholm, Jerry Halliwell, and Emma Bunton as the final Spice Girls lineup?
1: Well, um, <laughs> as I say, there were 400 girls that showed up to the audition in London. Yes. Mm-hmm. That was then whittled down to a second audition of around a dozen, ten to a dozen girls, and they included Melby, Mel C, and Victoria. Jerry had missed out on the first audition because she was overseas. It may have been during her stint presenting on the Turkish Let's Make a Deal, where she was <laughs> a hostess at the time. <laughs> Anyway, oh my god. So Jerry has this, I an, know this amazing like gift of the gab. So she calls mm-hmm. up, she's seen the advert, and she calls up and says, oh, are you still looking or have I missed it? And they say, come down to the second audition, great. So then Jerry's in there. And Jerry's actually said since if she'd arrived as one of the 400, she doesn't think that she would have had a look in because mm. Jerry will always be the first to say that she's not a classically trained singer or a dancer. Yes. the story that I always love is Victoria didn't really know any pop songs so she sang Mine Hair from Cabaret (laughs) which is just the most surreal thing Ah! to think about Victoria's Liza
0: That is bananas.
1: Yeah, it's really, really mental. Victoria had been at college to do theatre and dance. Right. So they had Victoria, Melby, Mel C mm-hmm. and Jerry, and then they had a girl called Michelle Stevenson. Chris and Bob of Heart Management packed them off to a house in either Maidstone or Maidenhead, both towns an hour or so outside of London. Right. No one seems to remember which one it was Because sure. they're similar names They moved into this house The five of them set to work But they also set to work on getting to know each other, right? Mm-hmm. Like these were four girls that were normal girls They went out, they drank together One of them said they only knew what three meals were They ate one of three meals They ate burger, they ate fish and chips Or they ate a curry And that and that was their diet How British yeah. I mean, these were girls that they were dead broke. Their vocal coach, Peppy Lerner, who actually was really intrinsic to helping them harmonise and help mould their voices. She would go around three times a week and she'd bring bags of her old clothes because the girls were dead broke and they'd all go through and Victoria would sniff at them because, you Ah! know... Of course. Yeah. Easy V doesn't come for free. And so (laughs) they'd they'd rifle through them and they were just really normal girls. They didn't have higher education. The girls were in that house for about six to nine months. They were a bit unclear what was really going on. They had some writing sessions, I believe. But it was a lot
0: about getting to know each other. Because one thing that feels so important to me is almost this like operatic sense of camaraderie is like what defines the ethos of this group. So that feels almost paramount to vocal and dance training in this particular band, because that is what we remember the Spice Girls as. They really did seem like they loved each other. They loved being together. Mm. They made each other laugh. They really got each other. There was true, deep, meaningful friendship between them. So that's very interesting to me that that value was sort of in place from the get-go in this project.
1: It was summer camp, you know? It really does seem like it. It was like a mix of summer camp and a university dorm and the one that didn't fit was... Our girl Michelle? It was Michelle. It was Michelle Stevenson. You're right. You're right. So Michelle, Victoria said she spent more time on the sunbed than she did with the other girls. Right, because the other
0: thing was the four were extraordinarily ambitious and I feel like that's a really important Mm -hmm. key to this. They really wanted wanted this like big, big, big time. And that Michelle was the outlier here, not because she lacked talent, because as we said, none of them are really here because they're like the best at anything, but because she lacked the ambition.
1: I think it takes a really special kind of person to be willing to be broke for six to nine months and to live in a house with (laughs) no, uh, not particularly a a glamorous house with no guarantees. (laughs) There was no contract. This was something that I'll circle back to. There was no contract. And the girls kept asking for a contract because. Cause they needed that stability and mm. reassurance. At some point in this time, Michelle dropped out. She was briefly replaced by a girl called Abigail, mm. who then left, I think, because she had a spot at nursing school. Mm -hmm. And then Chris and Bob were racking their brains and Bob remembered that he knew a woman called Pauline Bunton, Emma's mum, and Mm -hmm. he remembered having met Pauline's daughter and her being really talented. She'd gone to the Sylvia Young School, which a lot of pop stars have been to over the years. And so Emma had been at Sylvia Young. She'd had some small parts in British soap operas like EastEnders. Gives you money. And he called up Emma, and the rest is history. And it seems like she gelled in a way that Michelle never did. And it wasn't before long that they really took their careers into their own hands.
0: So... They end up in this five-sum. How do they go about with Heart and then very soon after without Heart pursuing a record deal, getting a record deal, and starting to create the music that will comprise their debut album, Spice?
1: Well, things really came to a head with Heart. Victoria talked to her dad, who was not a lawyer at all. He was an electrical engineer, I believe. And she said, <laughs> Dad, is it a bit weird that we've still not got a contract? Right. And he said, yeah, it's been like going on a year now. And he said, I get out of Mm-hmm. And this is where a bit of the spice mythos puts a bit of a haze over things. There are mm. stories that they stormed the heart management office. Yes, I saw this. Stole back their masters, including wannabe. Yeah. And like hopped in Jerry's beat up secondhand car, Volkswagen Beetle or Fiat 500 or whatever it was and that they jumped and they were straight up on the motorway to meet with Elliot Kennedy, who would help right. to craft some of the songs.
0: That's a perfect Spice Girls anecdote, because even if you think about how we first meet them storming through and making hay of a formal party in the wannabe video, there's something right. perfectly Spice Girls about that story of them storming into the
1: manager's office and stealing the demos. back. gorgeous. Swag. Yeah, um, amazing. <laughs> like, so glamorous to think you'd storm the office, put your foot down. I don't know if that happened i think they just gave them the slip at the end of the day the benefit of having no contract the benefit of having no contract i don't necessarily believe that wannabe have been written at that point i believe that they got some sketches of songs, I think part of their frustration was that their music wasn't actually progressing in the way that they felt, mm, and mm, mm, mm. they kept hearing this name being banded around by heart management called Elliot Kennedy. Mm-hmm. He was a songwriter and producer who had just had a huge number one, We Take That Everything Changes, the title mm-hmm. track from their second album. It's we we'll forget Danny Minogue He was by no means like the biggest Pop producer out there he, The name had been sort of dangled like a carrot In front of them for so long And what they did is they Did I go to his home, I think in the north of England It might have been Sheffield and showed up at his door, and as the story goes, they worked together for several days, and in those sessions, they worked together on Say You'll Be There and Love Thing from the first record. Mm -hmm. When does Simon Fuller come into the picture? So Simon Fuller kind of comes into the mix because he had somehow heard a demo tape, which had included early versions of some of the songs. He was Annie Lennox's manager. That was his claim to fame, really. But he had been in the industry for a long time. He always had this interesting eye and was also fundamentally unfazed by women that were very strong and opinionated. Mm -hmm. I think they liked him because he didn't tell them what to do. He'd heard a demo from them and they'd come to his office and from interviews he's given, it sounds like he was enchanted by them. Like he just really thought that there was magic. Mm -hmm. There's something about
0: the five of them and how they stuck together from the beginning that felt like almost like a protective barrier to them against some of the misogyny and like over-sexualization that sometimes men in the music industry can put on aspiring young women. And I'm not saying they didn't experience this at all, but how many young women's careers feel like they're defined by older men attempting to control them, to control how they present their bodies, control how they sell their sexuality, whatever that is. And they never had that vibe. And I always thought to myself how much of that had to do with them almost forming this group that protected one another from that. Like they really formed this union that allowed them to both skip some of that and retain their integrity and their own ethos and point of view as a group in a way that I think a lot of young women entering the pop space don't have the ability to do on their own. They don't have that kind of protection. So there's something in that that allows for a deeper cut to what girl power is and what the entire ethos of Mm -hmm. the band's output was, which is that they did look out for each other and they did protect each other. And I think the addition of what you're telling me about Simon Fuller feels pertinent here. Like this band, unlike a lot of young women who are entering the pop space, had the permission structure, protection, support in place to really be themselves and present a kind of different version of pop womanliness than we are used to. We're used to young pop stars selling to us or being sold to us as. So that feels like a, a very critical aspect of this is that they had each other and that they had the support of this manager that supported them in that endeavor so they're with fuller as you said they've worked with kennedy on a series of demos let's talk about how they get their deal with virgin and then what the creative process is like finishing creating the songs that make up their debut record spice
1: they had a showcase and there was a label bidding war for the band Mm -hmm. virgin were really actively pursuing it it's really fascinating to unpick how they made their record because so much of it seems like happy accidents, Mm -hmm. which is so like in keeping with the rest of the band.
0: Well, none of them are like traditionally trained songwriters or, you know, they're not like sitting down and plucking things out on the guitar. They're not Taylor Swift. They're not Joni Mitchell. They're, (laughs) They're not even Madonna. And the fact that I got looking into this was that they were super passionate and ambitious and wanted to be deeply involved in the process of creating these songs. And as we mentioned, mm-hmm. some of them happened with Matthew Rowe and Kennedy. And then the other major producer that comes into the mix, I think maybe post signing the record
1: deal is this guy, Absolute. Totally. So Absolute was, I believe it's a duo of two guys, Paul Wilson oh, and Andy Watkins. But they go by Absolute, like kind of as this entity. And they worked with Spice Girls on, Say so You'll Be There, Love Thing, and Last Time Lover from the first record. The other really important guy to crafting the sound of the first record is this guy called Biff Stannard. And he'd had a chance meeting This guy, Biff Stannard He was the boyfriend of a guy called Tom Watkins Who managed E17 And had Mm -hmm. previously managed Pet Shop Boys Mm -hmm. So Biff was always around these kind of pop boys And had started to produce himself He had done a song for E17 called Steam Which was the title track of their second record You bring the body and I'll bring the... And so this guy Biff is walking through a London recording studio one day and he's just had a meeting with Jason Donovan and melby accosts him and i love all this lore and like
0: everything is like a scene from spice world like like every single thing is like so perfectly
1: them that it almost totally. is unbelievable i mean it's so that i mean and the story goes that melby jumps on his back and she says you've got an ass like a black man and they just both start cracking up <laughs> it's like at once it's too perfect to
0: be believable but also i can picture it perfectly clearly in my mind
1: who knows i mean there's sometimes a little bit of the myth making here but it is the kind of thing that melby would do so melby drags him in to meet the girls and they get on like a house on fire Uh so they're hanging out in the studio and he notices that in conversation they must have gone a bit loopy by this point because they've been spending so much time together but they keep saying this in joke to each other, that's the story Mm -hmm. kind of as a stand-in for something rude or like a little je ne sais quoi Uh so he thinks, oh brilliant and then within two days as the story goes, they write Wannabe (laughs) Yay! Can
0: you talk to me about how you would describe the sound of Wannabe, what the message and theme of Wannabe is, what genres it's pulling on, and why it is the debut single of this group and conveys something emblematic
1: about their ethos? I mean, I think everything they stand for is present in the song. We talk about the message of girl power, that friendship is more important than boys and relationships.
0: If you want to be my lover, you got to get with
1: Make it last forever Friendship never ends We talked about the individuality Of all the members who are called out by name In the song
0: so a from a to Z. You She's a real lady
1: you have the sense of fun And anarchy In this glorious earworm Zig-a-zig zig. Ah Sorry,
0: buddy,
1: Which is this Mm -hmm. kind of brilliant nonsense And it's a little sexual and it's a little cheeky But it also doesn't alienate a family-friendly audience either Really almost seems like it has sunshine pouring out of it There is such Mm -hmm. energy and vivaciousness to the way their voices sound. The way that on the pre-chorus Jerry and Melby trade tell me what I want, what you really really want to tell me, it has a playground chant element, but there's a sophistication and snappiness that gives it an R and B edge too.
0: And that call and response is very hip-hop b trope.
1: Yeah, like it's not a world away from salt and Pepper, and I think that is part of it too. And it has the rough around the edges thing as well. Like their voices don't sound perfect mm-hmm. necessarily, but their harmonies do sound good. They do sound good as a five-piece, and when they get to the chorus, their voices are really quite lovely together. They sound of a piece but individuals, and it's so funny <laughs> to think about it in pop history too, because it's a very unconventional, pop song they're different hooks and parts that shouldn't necessarily go together but somehow combine to make this amazing like Frankenstein's monster
0: yes and you know I was really struck this time about a couple things one is that the first line of the song is I'll tell you what I want and I always mm. find that to be a very interesting mission statement for the vibe that Spice Girls has which is like they're in control they're here to set the rules. Bulls of engagement for their relationships with men. Mm-hmm. And they're always here to say, if you can't meet these specific standards, I'm very happy hanging with my girls. Like that's very much like the vibe of so many Spice Girl songs. And especially on this first record, it's a theme they return to often. It's like, if you can't clear this bar, mm-hmm. I'm very happy being in my girl gang. <laughs> and it's not in this kiss off way that like a Destiny's Child song has like kind of an edge to it and feels pointed and there's almost like a darker hurt vibe. If you listen to Say My Mm. Name, for instance, there's a feeling like, yes, that's also kind of setting the rules of engagement for a male partner, but it's coming from a place of like woundedness and being hurt. Whereas this has a frivolity and a carefreeness to it that is setting the rules of engagement from like almost like a joyous place. Like I'm so fulfilled with my friends that there'd be no reason for me to even care or engage with you if you weren't willing to meet these standards and that's such a powerful message that's so singular to the Spice Girls I feel like in this particular song that then permeates a lot of the other songs on this record and it's really I mean it is essentially a hip hop track Mm. which was I think another important theme of this record that I think links back to some of our conversations about the influence of American R&B and girl groups. One thing I thought about a lot while listening to this record and Wannabe in particular is the way that it presages what Max Martin is going to start doing in terms of incorporating the sounds of American R&B and fusing them with like a Europop sheen on Show Me Love by Robin, on Hit Me Baby One More Time. I mean, the piano stabs on this, the dun 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 dun, dun that part of it. Almost sounds like it's presaging the dun dun, dun part totally. of Hit Me Baby One More Time. And this sort of fusion of R&B with this Euro pop sheen also defines wannabe. Because wannabe, almost in a certain sense, the beat of this could be like a Coolio party song. A little bit of like rolling with my homies our Fantastic Voyage or whatever. Looking back on it, it's very pointedly playing with hip hop and hip hop values i mean the entire beginning of the song yo i'll tell you what i want what i really really want it all is engaging very actively and trying to position itself as essentially a hip hop song and in some ways i feel like spice is a hip hop and r&b record in retrospect
1: i think it definitely comes from that it definitely shares a lot with the max martin stuff which kind of as you say it put american r&b through this european lens the spice girls was almost like a translation of a translation you know <laughs> like the translation of hip-hop to a hip-hop girl group like tlc who put their own twist to producer like biff stannard to them and it all converged and it was also at a point where hip-hop and pop was starting to cross over with songs like fantasy by mariah As you say, big chart hits from Coolio and Warren G, and that the rules were kind Mm. of starting to disintegrate, and there felt like it was a lot of room to play with those sounds.
0: The other part about Wannabe that is like intrinsically tied to its arrival and its explosion and the Spice Girls' explosion is the music video, yeah. which is a classic of the genre. Can you talk a little bit about what's going on in the Wannabe video?
1: Well, in the Wannabe video, on the most basic level, the Spice Girls arrive at a very fancy hotel, which in fact was a hotel that wasn't in use, that they assembled right. and filled with extras. And the Spice Girls yeah. arrive at this hotel, they taunt a horse, hall- family that are emerging from a libid scene before invading the lobby. Emma scatters the papers of the maitre d' or the greeter in the lobby. They proceed to kind of infect and invade the hotel and this refined (laughs) cocktail party with this anarchic energy that finds them dancing with posh ladies out for cocktails. It finds them canoodling with Mm -hmm. men in tuxedos. And there's an amazing choreographed scene of the chorus On the steps of this hotel in King's Cross And it is this perfect three and a half minute encapsulation Of them arriving, making an indelible mark And then in the space before you've hardly blinked They are leaving and hitching a ride on a passing bus mm-hmm. And it is just the most incredible encapsulation of what they are all about. There is performance there, and there is clear skill to the way they're performing. Their identities are all very defined, from Posh Spice Gucci dress to the Mel C sportswear to Jerry kind of vampish... Mm-hmm. Glittery outfit she wears leotard. The leotard And the platform yeah. boots And mm-hmm. it just does it all mm-hmm. I mean the video It was kind of marketed as They'd really crashed this hotel They didn't But it was filmed in one take They had to run through it I think seven or eight times Which still doesn't seem like a ton It still had this air of being unstudied And yes. it wasn't perfect Jerry's like kind of looking behind her To make sure she doesn't trip And yeah. it's You know what I mean? like Jerry teetering on the heels Jerry's really teetering important and, and the then video. like posh is yeah. like running in the heels and it was so refreshing the video premiered on cable music channel called the box in the UK in March mm-hmm. which was kind of like a test mm-hmm. run to mm-hmm. see what the appetite was and the music video soft launched the phone lines lit up and it was this amazing like galvanizing thing of even though the song didn't come out for a few months there was already this slight electricity about them and the curiosity Mm -hmm. which was really smart they really became figures of curiosity that were being written about a ton and top of the pops magazine a spin-off from the popular TV show in the UK was the one that gave them the nicknames baby sporty and that was right after this that was after the wannabe, I think it was between Wannabe and Say You'll Be There. Yeah, yeah. I mean it was a very irreverent magazine. There was an illustration; their heads were on spice jars, like you would find in a spice rack, and the yeah. illustrators like ginger right. spice and sporty <laughs> spice, and it was funny. And it kind of came from there, and the girls very smartly adopted that and ran with it because mm-hmm. it kind of did speak to their character. So. Wannabe
0: essentially blows up almost instantaneously mm-hmm. in the UK, right? I mean, it becomes essentially a gigantic number one phenomenon, pretty much on impact. Is that a proper understanding of what happened? I think
1: so. I mean, I think it ends the charts at yeah. number three and then it rose to number one. And it stayed at number one f- right. for seven weeks. I believe it's still the biggest selling girl group single ever. The song yep. was number one in 30 countries, mm-hmm. and that's no small feat. It's a
0: very special song. It's a
1: very special <laughs> song, and it's such a special moment. Mm-hmm. It's so And it got me into pop music, I will say It made me a pop obsessive
0: I don't know if there's a single pop song I can think of that I have such warm feelings and memories of Every time it comes on Yeah I'm just like, this is me coming into myself as a pop fan, like, and as a kid and as a person and as a cultural observer, it is that song. So Wannabe blows up, as you said, it goes number one around the world. The Spice Girls are instantaneously in the summer and early fall of 1996 global superstars. In September, they release Spice. Let's talk about the rest of the music on this record. Talk to me about some of the other songs on Spice, how it presents the Spice Girls and kind what genres and styles they're playing with on this record.
1: I think we are really right in saying that it does draw a lot from r and I think it shows a lot of sides to the Spice Girls while still sticking to this fundamental ethos of them being an independent embracing girl gang. So mm-hmm. having set up themselves in Wannabe as independent women who Prioritise friendship Over male relationships necessarily That kind of gives them a lot of freedom (laughs) To explore different ideas and themes I mean, say you'll be there I wouldn't say it's a straight down the middle R&B song But it is the kind of song That by 1996 or so SUV Were making It has a slinkier edge that showed that they weren't mm-hmm. afraid to lean into sexiness, particularly in the video where they're all in these kind of fantastic, superheroic PVC outfits. And that mixed mm-hmm. with the G-Funk slash R&B... Synthesizer noise. Yeah, totally.
0: That like Dr. Dre siren synth that's you can recognize from The Chronic.
1: Yeah, it's a little of that low-slung West Coast sound, and that song, I think, more than Wannabe is such a showcase for their voices. Mm -hmm. Victoria really holds her own, and I think she has a very special voice that is subtle and complements the others. LC is unveiled in Say You'll Be There As a powerhouse That is probably Mm -hmm. the One of if not the strongest Singer of the group On Say You'll Be There and other moments on the album She has these joyful Ad-libs that Are so memorable And transform A song like in its final chorus Into something that Explodes with euphoria By the end
0: And she was the real singer, I mean she was the one that carried some of the more difficult moments both on this record and on the second record.
1: Yeah, she did. And she's very nimble with her vocal. Like it can yeah. be very sweet and then it can really be a powerhouse thing as well.
0: I, I was also um struck so much on Say Over There listening through it again as I was getting out with Wannabe about this thing they repeatedly do on this album, which is if you can't meet my standard, I'm not into it. Mm. I mean, the entire lyric, if you can't work this equation, I guess I'll have to show you the <laughs> yeah. door. There's this very self-possessed vibe to them as young women that feels very different than a lot of young female pop stars were being presented to us in this particular period. And I kept thinking to myself, is Say You'll Be There about a man? Or are they setting standards for each other in their female friendships? Like, I think that can be sometimes unclear on this record. I think that's really I mean, I interesting. I thought this yeah. time...
1: I think it can be both, yeah. yeah,
0: 100%. Maybe this song isn't about setting standards in a romantic relationship so much as sort of saying, like, here's what it takes for friendships to work. And I think that that would be a very Spice girlsian take on that concept. No,
1: I totally agree. And I love what you say about having everything be on their own terms and unapologetic for being complex or mm-hmm. for being individuals or having rough edges. And yes. To Become One, which is like a very beautiful ballad, they're mm-hmm. still able mm-hmm. to give an edge to it with the safe sex message where Emma mm. sings to be a little bit wiser, baby, put it on, put it on, which is really not nothing. And for a group with lots of young fans, fans from all different kinds of yeah. stripes to have that message and such right. a mainstream song is, I just do not think you hear it. Hey.
0: They played towards kids, but they didn't sanitize what they were saying. No. Like, they're still here to talk about sex. Sex is still part of this equation in a way that, like, Britney, even though she was much more lascivious and sex forward in her image and the way that she was presenting, would never have on those early records talked explicitly about put it on, put it on, or to become you know, it would all have been much more in the subtext, but they were able to both play like an act that was geared towards younger people without sacrificing some of the adult perspective and frankness about sex that teen acts of this era, kind of the opposite would happen where they would be trying to sell you the sex through more covert ways. And then the music itself would have to be sanitized on some level. And I think that's a really interesting facet of the Spice Girls and speaks to sort of how much of they as women in their early 20s were in charge of what was going on in this music and how they were presenting themselves.
1: It's interesting, like I wonder how much the British versus Americanness plays into it because thinking about some of the The American pop stars emerging in the late 90s there was a sexiness To the image but there was also And this is kind of crazy to look back on But there was a focus on the purity Of these women as well Britney was kind of dogged with these questions About her virginity and Women were expected to be seductive But also God-fearing and pure And Spice Uh Girls were kind of just Like amazingly profane And Victoria was engaged Before the band, they'd all had boyfriends Jerry had done sexy modelling Like the jig is up, these are independent women that do have sex and do take control of that scenario. And I think that was really refreshing.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. And the other thing that I think that sort of cuts the sexiness and is so fundamental to them, how often do we let women in pop be Goofballs. And yeah. I feel like that's another part of the Spice Girls that is so singular to them. It's like they were so genuinely goof offs with each other and in the music and in their presentation. And that permeates a lot of the lyrical perspective on these songs that sort of cuts some of the sexiness. And then the other part of it that I think kind of pairs with the goofiness is there's such a deep, fundamental sweetness. Mm and good naturedness to this music and to their personas that sort of allows it to be a vehicle for some more complicated ideas than you might receive in other teen pop music. When I was listening to this, I was just awash with how fundamentally sweet this all was. And how good natured it all felt.
1: And I think that's what kind of allows them to talk about things like feminism in a way that seemed very approachable and digestible and not scary. I mean, Jerry always said feminism's a dirty word, girl power's just a 90s way of saying it. And I think what they really wanted to do was to spotlight the agency of women and their abilities to be well-rounded, to be economically independent and to Mm -hmm. have the support and uplift of other women. We cannot
0: escape this conversation about the first record without talking about perhaps my favorite song on the record, Who Do You Think You Are, in which I wrote in my notes, Dua Lipa wishes she had a disco homage this
1: great (laughs)
0: on Future Nostalgia. A truly perfect disco homage.
1: A perfect disco homage that really is very smart and winking and funny. Oh my god. I think it is hard to make pop funny in the music. And I think the the, yeah. the sonics, the bounce, and the squeak and the strut mm-hmm. of that song mm-hmm. is like you have springs in your shoes. That's how it feels to listen Absolutely. to it. And it was so canny of them to write this song because it's a song that's really about famous people losing touch with reality uh, and yes. kind of calling right. out the right. diva ethos. Yes, sir. For them to have done that and recorded it Before they even, you know They would never get stopped on the street I just think it's so funny and so prescient You know, I do not think that All of the songs on this record are top tier But I think (laughs) that they have such a Name names, Owen Name names Ah, I think Mama is kind of a Satcheran song (laughs)
0: But that's the sweetness I was talking about. It's so saccharine, but it's also as a gesture kind of crucial.
1: It's so hard for me to be critical about this music because it's so deeply embedded in I know me too. That's what I thought to cell myself. Of my body. <laughs>
0: When I was listening to this yesterday, I was like, is this record perfect or am I just unable to judge it as anything but? You know what I mean? Like every minute of this is perfect to me because all of these songs are so deeply, as you said, ingrained in my DNA. Even in its moments where I know the song is technically not that great. I think Mama's a great example of that. I'm still completely swept up in it. I wrote in my notes this is against my will and better judgment life affirming.
1: (laughs) I was listening to the record while I was cooking earlier in the week and every song made me happy. For me it's no skips but if I step back and think about what we're really saying which is that this is a record that is indebted to the R&B of the time it's also indebted to this London hip hop pop of someone like Nana Cherry. And like mm. when you really stack it up to some of those other artists, is this record Crazy Sexy Cool? No. Is this record no. Donkey Divas or no. raw, like Sushi? No. That's a high standard. Yeah, it's a high standard, but that's what we're trading it. This is what we're talking about. We're yes. talking about the Pantheon, you know, like We are, we are. I think that some of these beats and productions in other people's hands might have sounded quite generic. I agree. And I think because the Spice Girls had such force about them to their delivery, to their wordplay, and to their chemistry, which extended to the Mm -hmm. record, their banter Mm -hmm. between each other, and their silliness and fun turns of phrase on the record, Mm -hmm. I think that's what elevates material that could be forgettable in someone else's hands.
0: They're having so much fun. It is so abundantly obvious that they had a blast making this, that it is impossible to consume it even in its weaker moments without a smile on your face. And I think that's kind of the ultimate point of this album is that their personality and how much fun they had making it is what drives this entire thing home. So obviously, Spice is one of the most successful albums in music history. It has four UK number ones, Wannabe, Say You'll Be There, to Become One, Who Do You Think You Are slash Mama A and B side release in the U.S.? Wannabe goes number one. I believe Say You'll Be There goes number three. To Become One goes number four. I mean, this is just as big of an arrival as you can possibly have in the music industry. What is their success looking like? Like. How do you remember even experiencing it or now looking back in your critical eye? Like, how can we help convey what the size of this
1: impact was for the listeners who might not have lived through it? My bedroom was very small, not much (laughs) bigger than a shoebox. And one wall was closets, one wall was a window, and the other two walls had about six foot high Spice Girls posters on each one. One was a silver one there on the sofa. The other uh, one was a white backdrop. This was not uncommon. In the <laughs> no, I'm right there with you.
0: On the other side of the pond, yes. I had one wall of my bedroom that was also covered amongst others, but very heavily dominated by Spice Girls imagery. And I had the lollipops and I had later the VHS of Spice. I mean, like there was branding going on here. It was in every corner of my life
1: I mean, I forced my mom to buy Pepsi Because you had to collect (laughs) 30 of these blue ring pools And then you could send it off with a $4.99 And then you might get a CD of an unreleased song Step to me Mm -hmm. that they've recorded for the advert or something And we traded the photos They were Spice Girls photo albums And we would swap the photos like they were Baseball cards in the schoolyard Which
0: did you identify with? Like who was your Spice Girl of
1: choice? I liked Baby
0: Mm, that makes sense. What
1: did you like? From what little I know about you. Oh, so scary, 100%. Really? I wanted to be scary so
0: bad. Yes, she was so powerful mm-hmm. seeing, and so comfortable in her skin. Yeah. And seemed like she was just having so much fun all the time. Like, mm. she just seemed so rowdy and comfortable in who she was. And I think she was kind of the coolest one on some level. Like, she was cool. Like, there was something chic and cool. I loved, like, when she wore her hair in the little buns I wanted play the bantu
1: knots and had, then,
0: exactly
1: and the nasa jacket she wears in the movie yeah. like that's i mean oh, just unbelievable
0: yeah yeah i mean their style really was iconic and so interesting i thought looking back in the way that it actually kind of nods to like swinging 70s london vibes totally, that was yeah. you know the platform boots and the mini dresses i mean they really nodded to kind of mod culture in how they dressed
1: and it's an interesting thing to step into because 60s Kings Road in London And designers like Mary Quant Really helped Women throw out the Conservative ideas of the 50s And bring in this colourful Short hemlines And maybe low plunging Mm -hmm. tops And was dressing like women Who were buying for themselves and not being bought for. And that kind of independence shows through and I loved the way they dress. It all felt very mm-hmm. real to who they were. They all had individual style within this yeah. aesthetic as well, which was really interesting. I feel like that
0: image and all of it, they were real masters at capitalizing on the success of this thing. It loops back to what I brought up earlier in the conversation, which is that this was such a short amount of time. Mm. They made such a huge impact in such a short amount of time. You think back given the amount of hits, given the level at which they're referenced as emblems of this period, that they were around for 10 years doing all of this stuff. But it all happened in like an 18-month span. So in thinking about that... Spice is humongous. As we talked about, they're on an arena tour pretty much instantaneously. They're all over the world. These songs are smash hits. They are literally the hottest thing on planet Earth. And they move very quickly into following up Spice with their next record in less than a year. And it's, as we've been hinting at, it is paired with the iconic Oscar-winning film, Spice World. Can we talk a little bit about how they made this record so fast on the heels and in the midst of this whirlwind of the first album. Like, how did that even happen?
1: They recorded this album while filming the Spice World movie in London in summer Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. 1997 I want to say. Summer
0: of 97. Yeah.
1: They had this extremely Mm -hmm. grueling filming schedule of Spice World, which was all Mm -hmm. in London.
0: And demanded quite a bit from them as actresses. Let's be honest. It demanded a lot
1: from There are a ton of costumes. There are a ton of different setups. There were these surreal moments of Jerry dressed as Wonder Woman, say. She wore Linda Carter's original Wonder Woman outfit. Girl power,
0: equalization between the sexes.
1: Hmm. They really had to dig deep
0: for these performances.
1: (laughs) They were playing themselves, but the sheer amount of absurdity in the movie must have called for so many scenes and setups. I think it was really, really long Mm -hmm. days. I know that they were joined by some veteran actors like Richard E. Grant, who played their manager, who would help run lines with them. Mm -hmm. They were running lines while they were having their makeup done because... There wasn't adequate rehearsal time That had been allocated So it Mm -hmm. was very on the fly And they had a recording studio Set up in the back And the concept was that The film would essentially be A promotional vehicle for the new album And that it would feature songs from the first album But the songs had to be written so quickly Because they would appear in the film and on the soundtrack And for the second record they worked with a lot of the same producers Pretty much all of the names from the first record show up on the second Mm -hmm. Absolute, Biff Stannard and Matt Rowe, Elliot Kennedy All present and correct Interesting nugget that I learned the other day is that Stop This kind of fabulous 60s throwback Was written because it was aimed at their management because their schedules were so insane and they wanted to say, Stop right now, thank you very much.
0: Which also mirrors a scene in the film where they actually go through this thing in the movie where their manager is overworking them and they attempt mutiny against the manager. Yeah, yeah. Look at this. Front page news again. Suppose
1: the whole lot of you have been drowned. Well, we weren't though, weren't we? Speak for yourself. What do you think you were doing going off like that? We were just having fun. What? You know, fun. Like,
0: ha, 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 ha. Look, Clifford, we're old enough to take responsibility for our own lives. Do you know what I mean? You don't have a life, you have a schedule. You are part of a well-oiled global machine. There are people everywhere working their butts off for you. People like Deborah here. Uh,
1: can you leave my butt out of this, please? Oh, just don't be so uptight, Clifford. Uptight? Uptight?
0: You've got a live gig here tomorrow. It's my job to see that you turn up. My bum is on the line here. Could you please leave butts and bombs out of this? One minute. Clifford, some things are more important than gigs, you know Like what?
1: Like self-respect and our freedom for a start Yeah, and friendship
0: So what do you say? You, you don't want to turn up here tomorrow night? Well, maybe we don't
1: And life imitates art because in retrospect This is when the cracks started to show And some of the members, right. especially Jerry, got to be less happy I know that mm. they had some falling outs on the set I think Jerry was always very ambitious, a lot of the other girls. Emma just missed her mum. She would go home and see mm-hmm. her mom if there was an early finish one evening.
0: So in thinking about the songs on Spice World, one thing that really jumps out to me is, I feel like it's less overtly hip-hop and R&B-oriented. Than the first one. I mean, you hear this immediately on the lead single Spice Up Your Life, which is essentially like a Samba salsa. Yeah, song? yeah, 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 yeah. What does that tell us about where the Spice Girls are in their journey as like a brand? I think most importantly, because I feel like if nothing else, Spice Up Your Life is a Spice Girls branding opportunity. <laughs> like the message of the song essentially being like, be spicier. Have more spice girls in your life, essentially. When you're-
1: only about one thing which is it to be spicier and (laughs) and it really doesn't make a ton of sense it is clearly informed by the fact that they had been global superstars and were on their way to becoming a true global brand at this point the video shows them as these pilots of a a (laughs) spaceship slash (laughs) hovercraft thing they were really on top of the world and they wanted everyone to know it in this song right I think there are some witty moments i think there's some very playful moments i think it tries to capture the absurdity of wannabe a little bit in the zig right it has the la la la
0: and the way they trade parts on the bridge yeah Bingo.
1: I think that it was very effective in commemorating and putting that line in the sand that they had leveled up in this certain way.
0: Yeah, I think the thing that runs through this record a little bit more as you were sort of getting out with Stop is almost like a Motown and Soul Mm-mm. aesthetic. I mean, Stop, obviously, as you said, is a marvelous recreation of like Holland, Dozier Holland, Ashford and Simpson, Motown, You Keep Me Hanging On, Ain't No Mountain High Enough, Dancing in the Streets by Martha Ugh, and the Vandellas. I mean, talking about- So good. Talking about homaging girl groups that have right. come before them. I feel like this song, more than almost any song in their discography. I mean, we talked about the TLC homages, but this song really directly nods at the most formative era of girl groups in history in a very overt way. But also too much the third single has a duop feel to it. It almost feels like it could be like, that kind of like New Orleans style. And the other thing that jumped out at me this time that I hadn't picked up before, just in terms of sort of the nods at classic R&B and Motown is do it has almost a Jackson 5, I want you back feel to it.
1: That's an amazing observation. It totally plays into that. There's a little disco funk to it. It's that Mm -hmm. late motel soul. That's a favorite of mine, actually. Oh,
0: me too, me too. It's such a good one. And think about the rest of this album. I think there was like a bit of a lightning rod of controversy in the song Move Over, where this branding of the Spice Girls started to potentially tip over into something that became a little bit unsavory to some of their observers because i know a backlash starts to form while this record is incredibly successful also there's a lot of criticism leveled at the spice girls during this period for the way that they are shamelessly capitalistic about expanding their brand and there's a song on this record called move over that is essentially was commissioned by pepsi oh, as, a, as a as as a commercial soundtrack. Can you talk a little bit about maybe that song as a good jumping off point for what the Spice backlash that was starting to form during this period look like?
1: It seemed like they never said no to anything (laughs) To be completely frank (laughs) Whether it was Walker's Crisps in the UK or whether it was Chaba Chups or whether it was Pepsi or Impulse Body Spray Or or Polaroid cameras (laughs) Like you can really go on ad Nausea and it's not an exaggeration I think this is an example of mismanagement Because I think that they Mm -hmm. Became drained and I think their Commercial responsibilities And opportunities I don't think it started to overshadow the music by just think on like a personal level it started to make them extremely drained and I think it Mm -hmm. started to make them really tired and not enjoy what they were doing so much and Mm-hmm. You know, I wouldn't like to say that they were doing any of this against their will. There's a Victoria line. I think she said she wanted to be f- famous as Persil, which is a laundry detergent. Right. You know, she wanted to be as famous as Tide. You know what I mean? Right. Like, it's that embedded yeah. in a household name? Like everyone knows where it right. is. And I watched this interview with her and Victoria, who seems quite canny about this stuff. It's the Ozone, which is a kind of irreverent UK music show, and the host says to Victoria, "What do you think about people that say you're doing too many ads and too?" Many commercials, and she was like, "Are you trying to ask us if we're selling out? Because yeah, we are. Oh, no, 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 You're you at I risk, you risk of being like, overexposed. You know what I People just going to know it's them again. That not yeah. up to us, though,
0: so is it? Can't <laughs> say <it>. that <laughs> to Jerry now. <laughs> <laughs> <Whoa>. <laughs> I, now the I only let her get away with that. Do you mean are we selling
1: out? Yes. And you know what? Good for them. Like, five girls, not from very much means, and to seize the opportunity because there might not be another opportunity is absolutely smart. It also made them a bit of like a lightning rod, as you say, for conversations about, okay, so they're doing all these ads for Pepsi and Polaroid and seemingly everything. And how does that fit into this idea of them as feminist icons for the 90s right. like is this really exactly. the kind of girl power that we want to be celebrating when you will put your name to things that are such global corporations yeah the Pepsi is one thing because stars have done that from Michael Jackson to Britney and so on. it's a rite of passage to Madonna. It's a little bit of a rite of passage but with Spice Girls it reached a new level and there was a lot of puzzling and think pieces and a lot of profiles that were written about them. Tried to wrestle with this idea, particularly a great piece that I've read before and reread for this is when the queer punk feminist writer Kathy Acker interviewed the band for Mm -hmm. the cover of American Vogue. I think it was the January 98 issue. So it was to tie Mm -hmm. in with the Spice World, the movie, which was out in January 98 in the US. And it talked about the idea that feminism for her in the 80s and early 90s had always been about not engaging with the system like a very punk point of view and she described herself as being won over by these girls in all their chaos Mm. and in all of their not necessarily academically educated political views. They had a lot of views but they were kind of all over the place. They
0: were flying by the seat of their pants in a sense.
1: There was no media training. They didn't know how to talk about necessarily like politics and thank goodness they didn't because you got something much more real than you'd ever get from a Pop star these days And they didn't really have a party line Or like a group stance on anything Everything you got was from the seat Of their pants and they marked A moment for pop feminism in the late 90s that whether you liked it or didn't it definitely got people talking about these feminist ideas that were not very cool to talk about in that period
0: they definitely put a younger 90s spin on it and maybe that came with sort of like a hyper capitalistic
1: yeah totally. edge to it yeah
0: i think the question is at this moment as spice world the album is another monster success as they're having all of these mm-hmm. other singles. As the movie comes out, and of course, on the just the back of the success that they were having is also a smash success, and all of the brand blah blah. Does the sort of ethos that we were discussing that formed the band, this pay on to female friendship, this empowered, self possessed version of womanhood, the sweetness, the mm-hmm. fun lovingness, the homespunness, does it start to become? swallowed up very quickly in the whirlwind that's going on here or do you feel like they were able to maintain that through all of it
1: i think to an extent yeah i think their commercial responsibilities does force them to i wouldn't say dampen some of the fun but there was real work that they had to do i think that the amazing thing about the spice girls and why they are so fondly is that for the two years that they were together they kind of never wavered from being the most exuberant band on the planet. Right, right. Even into the end of ninety seven, there was this like amazing moment where they were at the Royal Variety show and Jerry was pinching Prince Charles's bomb. And yeah, I mean I always thought they had that sense of fun through the end.
0: Yeah, they never lost that. And I think that's why what happens next came as such a genuine shock, which was that at the height of the success, they're on tour for Spice World in Europe. They're getting ready to launch an American tour. They have plans for a live album. I think they're already beginning work, perhaps on a third studio album (laughs) in the midst of all of this. And the whole thing kind of comes crashing down can you talk a little bit about that there's kind of two main factors here which is that they fire simon fuller
1: yeah
0: and jerry leaves the group how does that all come to pass
1: the first person to go was simon fuller who had been their manager and their main support for so long i mean they'd called him the sixth spice girl and he really always seemed to have their best interests at heart but Managing Spice Girls is not the same as managing Annie Lennox, and I think that he overstretched them. And I think he overstretched them, and also I think that they were a little, perhaps, naive to the exhausting realities of being a pop star, and he was the one that always had to crack the whip. They didn't like that And they didn't have a day off For an entire year And I do know right. that That is kind of untenable So Right They fired him because There had been rumblings I think one of the girls Had got the idea That they would manage themselves And it, it spread And mm-hmm. I think it may have been Jerry that planted the idea and he got the boot and I think that was just before they started their US tour.
0: But the real sort of kicker that ended the good times for us was Jerry leaving. Mm, Yeah. How did Jerry end up out of there? Why did she quit? I, I remember experiencing it as very sudden and shocking and very upsetting
1: I totally remember watching the infamous performance of the Spice Girls on the National Lottery Show in the UK. Because Mm -hmm. the National Lottery show On a Saturday night was where Popsouls would perform It was one of the most watched 20 minutes Of the television week in the UK Madonna would perform Mm -hmm. there and Cher would perform There and all of these people So Spice Girls were on to perform Viva Forever And I remember watching it and they said "Oh, Get well soon Jerry and Jerry's sick So we'll be performing as a four person It's really nice to see you all but Are we not missing somebody? We are unfortunately Jerry's not very Get Jerry. I know been- Jerry had been unhappy for a while She started to feel a little bit frustrated As the oldest one She'd been a bit like the informal leader of the group The mama right. bear in a way And mm-hmm. that had come back to bite her a little bit Where the girls started to resent her And she would get into arguments with the girls yeah. There was one opportunity that came up Just before she left Where she was asked to do an interview By herself Because... Jerry had actually had some experience with breast cancer whether it was a scare or mm. like a small thing that had been removed as a teenager so Jerry wanted mm. to give this interview for one of the charities or foundations that work with women with breast cancer and the girls had said mm. no you can't do that we only do things as the five of us and for her having been unhappy for a while, it was the final straw and... Right.
0: I read that like literally they got off a plane coming back from one of the tour stops to the UK and she literally said goodbye, goodbye or something as she was leaving the plane and then just never returned. And they
1: thought it was weird. I remember they thought it was weird because they never say goodbye yeah. to each other because they always see each other mm-hmm. six hours later because they're just going home to snatch yeah, right. some sleep.
0: Yeah. Uh-huh. And that was kind of it. And then she released this sort of cryptic statement essentially saying, I'm no longer with the Spice Girls and this is because of disagreements I have with them. And that was kind of it. This is an interesting denouement because you mentioned earlier that ultimately what made this all work was a certain je ne sais quoi, so a certain X factor, a certain thing that you couldn't necessarily put your finger on about the alchemy of these five people together. And to me, it really feels like while they went and finished this tour and while they made one more record, which we will touch very briefly on momentarily (laughs) for our own sanity, the group essentially couldn't function without the five of them in place is the feeling that I got. The minute Jerry was gone, so was the magic on some level.
1: It kind of crumbled. They fulfilled their obligations and Simon Fuller had always had a plan that they would do three albums and then do solo stuff. So I think they had that in their head and they've expedited that plan. And after the Spice World tour, which they finished as a four-piece, as you say, Mm -hmm. with some huge homecoming shows at Wembley Stadium in the UK, their real crowning moment they went on hiatus they released goodbye which was about
0: jerry or no it was about, it about jerry,
1: jerry. <laughs> come on yeah <laughs> it was about jerry it says goodbye my friend is not the end <laughs>
0: Also, Goodbye is their last Standard & Row song in this period. This is the last single, at least, that they released with the original co-crafters of their sound, which is also really interesting. So yeah, as you said, the Spice Girls wave, that initial 18 to two year wave just ends as soon as this tour wraps up. As you said, they have these homecoming shows at Wembley. And for the first time, I feel like there's a bit of a breath. There's a moment, there's a pause. yeah, And they return In 2000, as the quartet, and released this album forever, gone for the most part, along with Jerry, are all of the collaborators that made the sound with them. They record most of this music with American R&B impresario Rodney Jerkins, Uh a.k.a. Darkchild, and his cadre of co-producers and songwriters. And I don't know, without even having to get too much into the weeds with you, Owen, this is a depressing-ass album for me to listen to, because it just completely lacks the spark of the first two in almost every conceivable way do you have anything redemptive to say about forever
1: i, I holla really bangs to this day <laughs> you play <my> game, yeah. <laughs> I do think there are some fun moments And I think it's very much What Dark Child had on their hard drive There are some kind of elements That make you think a little of The writings on the wall Like a vastly superior record That came out just the year before And it is a bit of a sad sack (laughs) of songs. It's sad.
0: It's sad. It's just sad because there was such a magical thing about the first couple of albums and the way that they made Mm. you feel and the way that they conveyed their spirit that is just gone from this to me. It just feels completely It's not even like the elements are necessarily terrible. Like, Dark Child is an incredible producer. Like, even shitty Dark Child beats are still great to listen to. and. I'm sorry, but this album is not canon to me. So this is the last Spice Girls album ever. Mm -hmm. They each go off and have varying degrees of solo success. And I think there's a happy ending to this, which is that even though things ended in this sort of funky place, they've come back around. I mean, Jerry rejoined the group for numerous reunions. They famously performed at the London Olympics. They went on an entire world tour with the five of them. Now it's more posh, who's the difficult one to get back into the (laughs) fold, it seems like, when they're trying to reunite. But it feels like they are comfortable with just celebrating who they were during those two years and giving that to their fan base. It doesn't seem like they care that that's what they're remembered for. They have this desire to be like more or less than that. They're just kind of like, yeah, they're crowd pleasers and they've settled into that. And I think Jerry at one point I was reading even apologized to them on stage and said something like, I was really stupid for what I did and I'm so happy to be back with my girls on stage.
1: (laughs) occurred to me this afternoon I need to say something very very important that I should have said a long time ago to to Emma to Melanie to Melanie and to the fans is that I'm sorry I'm sorry I was just being a crack I want to say that it's just so good to be back with the girls that I love.
0: So I feel like in this legacy swing of their career, they've been able to sort of change the script and help correct the record on some more unsavory parts of the end of the initial period of their career. And they've been able to really shore up that legacy through these reunions and through the ways that they've been able to give fans a look back on those two years, 10, 20 years on. What do you think is the Spice Girls' legacy? Where do we see their impact in pop and what's come after them. And looking back now that we've had 25 years since the peak of their success, what is the lasting legacy of the Spice Girls?
1: I think that they had an immediate legacy, which was felt almost instantaneously, because suddenly there was about 50 girl groups launched, particularly in Mm -hmm. the UK, from Mm -hmm. girl groups like Mystique and Honeys to more copycat girl groups like Girl Thing and Girls at Play. And Mm -hmm. there was a ton. I think what they did was they brought back a sense of women empowerment to pop that hadn't necessarily been there and I thought they injected pop with a lot of irreverence and fun that I think that you start to see in the pop that followed it particularly in some of the other girl bands like Girls Aloud and Little Mix that came after. I think they made it cool to be who you are more fundamentally. Mm. I think that there's a little of that that we see in the stars today for who real is a huge part of their brand Whether that's the mm-hmm. Olivia's or Billies of the world Or even the Cardi B's of the world Speaking your mind Directly to fans Makes you feel so welcomed Into an artist's life and I think that they really understood that, and they didn't mm-hmm. put up any walls. I think they proved that being yourself and sharing that with the world and being someone that can light up a room and inject energy into it that's star quality, baby. You know? <laughs> Let's talk about the pop Pantheon. I mean, my first instinct, and, and this has kind of been my instinct since the beginning, that they're in Tier 3, specifically in Tier mm-hmm. 3A, Superstars mm-hmm. of Yore. I mean, mm-hmm. they had such a huge impact and were so inescapable for such a short period of time. They have a handful of hits, I would say, perhaps four or five, that are instantly recognizable to people that didn't grow up with them um, mm-hmm. that just bottle the 90s and that energy and expressiveness of pop at the time and I think they've really proven that that audience still exists through the multiple reunion tours right those shows have been like incredibly popular they came back in the late noughties and toured America I don't think they toured America on their most recent leg a few years back Mm -hmm. but I think they plausibly could and I think they'd be playing arenas probably Mm -hmm. possibly not stadiums but they'd be playing venues that are larger than theatres I think because they are so beloved by their fan base what separates them from some of the artists in maybe tier 2 is that I don't think their work necessarily set a new texture or sound or style for pop I think that their impact is perhaps more in them as people and as a phenomenon, what that meant for pop as commerce, what that meant for Mm -hmm. the way we think about women in pop. There are artists that change the course of pop and define the texture and style of what is to come. And Spice Girls were so much more than just the music. They were the personality. And you can't really separate the two, but their records, I don't think they're landmarks in pop history. In the way no. that great <laughs> pop records have set a course. Yeah, what's your instinct?
0: I agree with you. This is what I was thinking. I think they're technically in tier four.
1: Mm, interesting.
0: If you're just hitting the markers for it. Because if you go through those things, you've got one to two big albums, yes. Three to five big hit singles, yes. Yes. Name is recognizable to people of prime age in their moment. It's obvious they have one or two signature songs. I would say Wannabe is their obvious signature song, maybe secondarily Spice Up Your Life. But I just think their impact in the je ne sais quoi of the entire thing, bumps them into tier three. Who has made a bigger impact in a shorter career? I can't think of a single artist that has endured, and that, as you said, can tour arenas off of two hit albums in the span of 18 months Mm -hmm. in the late 90s. It's unprecedented, and it speaks to something that, as I say to every guest who comes on the show, You can throw all of these tier rules that you're reading on this page out the window ultimately because I think we both know and our discussion for the last three and a half hours speaks (laughs) to this, that they, for reasons that are hard to quantify, but easy to understand when you look deeper under the hood of this whole thing, are cultural icons Mm -hmm. in a way that outweighs and I think this is what you were getting at in terms of talking about, are there records classics? No. Are they the greatest singers of all time? No. Are they the greatest dancers of all time? No. Did they change the course of pop music history? Yeah, in some certain ways, but not in the ways that we think of as, uh, that Janet Jackson did, or Mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. Prince did, or whatever. But like, there's Something incredibly powerful and magical that I think putting them in tier four would be underselling what this group meant to pop music and Mm. their continued size of their impact and the level to which they are emblematic of their time period. If you talk about late 90s pop, they're one of the first five names you're probably pulling out of your hat, if not three, top three. Mm -hmm. So tier three sounds like where they belong to me personally.
1: Yeah, I think you're right, and I think if they released new music today, I think everyone that I know would be curious to hear it, whether it was with bated breath or whether it was with a little bit of a grimace, but... (laughs) Yeah. They hit on something that was so magic and they didn't, with the exception of Forever, which as we've said is not canon, they didn't let it fade into pay limitations of itself, you know? And there's something totally. very special about that. I
0: wonder what their legacy would have been like had they released eight more albums as a quintet over the last 20 years to diminishing returns. There's something beautiful about that the truncatedness of the whole thing to me. I can't escape that feeling. So last question, Owen, before I release you from my clutches, what is an underrated Spice Girl song? Maybe something we haven't touched on yet, which is hard because we've touched on quite a few of them that we can send this podcast
1: out on I've always had a massive soft spot for never give up on the good times from their second record Mm. Spice World Mm -hmm. a fantastic really fun disco-y throwback and when I saw them live at Wembley Arena in 1998 I think they performed it with the most amazing flares and dance routine and I was just the little pop fan in me don't think was ever as happy as seeing that live Mm
0: -hmm. i'm with you too i love that song and they never did give up on the good
1: times until (laughs) forever (laughs) Um,
0: okay so let's go out on never give up on the good times owen myers thank you so so much for being on the show
1: oh the pleasure's mine thank you
0: Well, kids, there you have it. Pop Pantheon Spice Girls Tier 3 Superstars. The judgment is rendered. I want to extend the heartiest thank you to the wonderful Owen Myers for being such a great guest. I want to say please... Rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon Wherever you get your podcasts, it really helps the show Follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod. follow me at Xiv on both Twitter and Instagram Come out to Gorgeous Gorgeous this weekend at Resident in downtown Los Angeles, hop in our Discord Check out the Spotify playlist I want to say thank you so, so much to Russ Martin for everything he does this week and every week to make this show happen, and until we meet again, you guys have a wonderful life. Bye-bye